You're listening to the Crossridge Women Podcast. The following is teaching audio from our fall 2023 study in the book of Nehemiah. For more about us and to access our resources, you can find us at crossridge.church forward slash W study. We're going to talk about observations tonight. Okay, we're going to start with how we start when we read um, and study the Bible. We're going to start with observing, looking at the text. And this book, like we said, Nehemiah, it's an easier book. Part of what makes it easier is we learned last um, last time we were together that it's a narrative book. It's a story, okay? And the narrative books or the stories in the Bible are some of the easiest to dig into and study in context. Now, some of you might be sort of pushing back against that a little bit uh, because it might be your instinct to say, actually, I find the, the letters in the New Testament, maybe the epistles, like Paul's writings, those are actually easier to understand and to read because it's basically he tells me what to do and I do it and we're good. So we can, there's, there's lots that we could unpack about that. Um, but for some of the same reasons as we talked about um, last time, we have to take the same sort of think, think in context when we, when we deal with Paul's um, books as we do any other book in the Bible. They're actually not easier to understand. And one thing that does happen, you can say that right now, well, it's easier just to take that list from Paul and then just do that until you get to the verse that says women must be silent in the gathering, right? Or you have to wear a head covering. Then you might start saying, wait, wait a minute. Okay, I thought this was easy because I was just going to do the list of what he said. So again, context always matters. So it's uh, a little bit easier to figure out in a narrative and in a story. Um, We love stories. Stories are sort of a part of us from the time that we are young. Our moms read us stories and we live into stories and like, you know, the whole Hollywood and all the movies and, and everything, there's... Story is is a part of us, so we kind of understand stories. When we are um, looking at these narrative books, uh, we can think of it, when we think of it like a story, that what makes it easy is that what we always want to look at are things like the answers to the, the five W's, right? Who, where, when, what, and then why. And the easiest ones really are who, and where and when. Those are really easy to spot when you look for the answers to who and where and when. And so tonight I thought we're gonna start with the very easiest because it's really important in these three chapters of Nehemiah to to talk about the who. So we did that in our homework. I had a few questions where you you were having, well, first of all, you were having to uh, look for the who. You were looking for all the characters. Uh, And then there were some questions to sort of tease out what you learned by looking at the characters, but we're going to do that together, okay? We're going to do some of these observations together first. Um, So let's talk about the who. I am going to just write on my little makeshift uh, whiteboard up here, and we're going to brainstorm all the the characters. Let's focus first just on uh, chapter one right now. You guys can just call it out, and I'm going to write down... Uh, We don't need to say anything about them. Let's just make a list. Who are the characters in Nehemiah chapter Characters in in the Bible, especially in a narrative. There's sort of two um, categories. We're looking at um, 
here, I'm going to change this color so you can see it better. We're looking at the human and the divine. Okay, so we have all these human characters, and then we have God, or the Lord. And um, so we said this the very in our very first meeting together, but we believe like something very important about the Bible is that it's human and divine literature. So it's God-breathed. God inspired everything that is written in that book. That is his word. But, but he used humans to write it down. It's a partnership. He inspired people, uh, humans, who wrote in human ways, with human languages, um, with human understanding and human context to actually get these scrolls that were put together and end up in this book, the Bible. So not only is the Bible a product of the human-divine partnership, but it tells the story of the human and divine partnership. God actually wants something to do with humans. God wants to partner with humanity. And the whole story of the Bible is telling how God's going to do it and why, like how it, how it all happens, okay? So uh, when we look at characters, so first of all, we see there is the divine and then there's human. And it's one of the best things that we can do is, um, is see, like, what does it teach us about God? And, and really, we can say, what does it teach us about humans, too? And we can not only just make a list of who all the characters are, but then we pay attention to what we learn about them. And we, we do that by looking at three things. We look at how they're described, what they say, and the action, what they do, right? So how they're described, what they say, and what they do. Um, and usually that's just found when you mark Nehemiah, or the word I, it says something right around that marking that you should pay attention to. It's probably something Nehemiah is saying or something Nehemiah is doing, or maybe it's something that describes him. It's the same thing is true about when we mark God or we pay attention to the character of the Lord. We learn a lot by just saying what's everything that it says about God and everything that it says about or the Lord or however uh, Jesus, maybe if you're in the New Testament. Um, and it, the, a biblical worldview says that we should understand humanity and ourselves by having a right view of God, right? It's really important when we're doing um, these Old Testament narratives to everything we can learn about God, who he is, what he does, what he says, how he relates to people, because that teaches us something about humanity, and in that it's teaching us something about ourselves. So let's do, let's do a little bit of that. Let's go to, let's do that with God the Lord. Let's, um, I think that's question something on page something. Um, it's on the left-hand side, and it's in the middle. Um, there was a question that said, list everything. Yeah, page 10, question two on page 10. Everything that is said about God in chapter one, who he is and what he does. So let's just brainstorm this on this side. Okay, let's, let's do one more little thing as far as all this goes. So let's think about the relationship between the people. So let's just focus on basically the people of Israel and Nehemiah. Let's just call them the people. The relationship between the people 
and the divine. Some of these words or phrases that we um, said, that we, that, that we learned about God or that we learned about humans are sort of like relational. They explain, or actually what I was thinking was, they, the, it's the DTR, they define the relationship. So let's try to define, what are some of the things that define the relationship between people and um, God or the human and the divine? Which of these um, phrases or words do you think speak to the relationship? Yeah, right there. Ooh. Okay, covenant. Yeah. The covenant was, was given because of love. God loves the people. God has steadfast love for these people. That is why he cut covenant with them and keeps covenant with them. Um, so if you haven't studied covenant before, it's not really a word we talk about a lot. And we do talk about it a lot here at Women's Study. It seems like it's coming up all the time in the Bible. But a covenant um, is a solemn binding agreement in the ancient Near East. It was a very common way two people entered into relationship. And it was a solemn binding relationship. They would do so over land. They might do so over their children if someone was going to marry someone else. Um, they would do so over like a, a business deal or a business arrangement, anything like that. Like covenant was a way in the ancient Near East that people related to each other. Um, God is, is, it's interesting, he actually enters into covenant with humans. Um, none of the other ancient Near Eastern gods gods of Egypt, the gods of Babylon, none of them wanted that kind of a covenant relationship with people. That was not common amongst the pagan gods. It was very unique to the Hebrew god, Yahweh, the Lord God. Um, but he kept solemn binding agreement, covenant relationship with his people. So um, out of covenant come some things. There's covenant traditions. There's, um, there's things that you do to cut the covenant together. There's like, um, what do you call that? Customs. There's covenant customs. You share a meal together. And, and it always means something like the two become one. It is that binding that you sort of take on your covenant partner. Um, so it's a really important, it's not enough for us to say God wants relation, wanted relationship with the people. He actually cut covenant and he like bound himself to his people um, with steadfast love. Yeah, it's really important. Basically, covenant sort of is the word that, that describes the whole relationship. Anything else that we see about the human and divine partnership? So love Relationship, covenant. Yeah, sin is in there. Yes, yeah, somewhere sin is in there. Amy doesn't want to say it out loud, but it's in there. What's that? Sorry. Yeah, so, so all of this kind of goes together. Okay, so somebody said this is really important. When you read, when you read Nehemiah 1 and his prayer, he says we've sinned against God. Okay, sin is not just something that the people do, it's just all oh, their bad behavior. Sin is something that happens against God. It breaks covenant relationship. 
if you come and work in the children's ministry here at Crossridge Church, we often say things like, sin separates. Uh, it's true, it's a true biblical principle in, um, throughout the story of scripture that sin separates, sin breaks relationship. And in particular, uh, the people of Israel's sin, which was idolatry, turning to other gods, was a sin against God and it broke their covenant, which involved what? These commands, the laws, the regulations that basically said, you shall have no other gods before me. Yeah. Uh, so Nehemiah is interesting. He actually confesses that sin, which is against God who's given the laws and commandments and regulations. Yeah. Any, anything else here that sort of stands out to you about let, that's like relational between, it's kind of a hard concept, I know, because sort of everything is. Even here, that, that God has, someone said, he listens and he sees. So, so we read these words, he, he has an attentive ear and his eyes are open. But what that means is that the God of heaven hears and sees people, right? He's attentive to human prayers. That also is very unlike any of the Babylonian gods that Nehemiah would have been used to in the king's court. Um, the gods of Babylon, their creation narrative is that um, they created people so that they could have some slaves. They wanted to sit around and do a little bit less. Sometimes that's why people have children. So, so someone can load the dishwasher, right? Let me tell you, it doesn't always pan out. So. But the Babylonian gods were like, we're going to create people, they're going to serve us, and we can live a life of comfort. Whereas um, the Hebrew creation narrative said God created people, why? In his image, to have relationship with him, to live with God. It's very different. So this is the whole thing. Like basically we're saying um, God wants to have relationship with, human, with humans. It, it, it actually goes to the very the foundation of the Hebrew and the biblical worldview about how God relates to people in a very different way than pagan people like King Artaxerxes or the people living around Nehemiah, all the people that were influencing the people of Israel while they're living in exile, in Babylon, in captivity, and they're experiencing all these other people that live around them. Um, and in their idea, like the gods are just out to punish you if you don't work hard enough for them. Uh, let's, let's move on. Let me just look for one second and see if there's anything that we should say that we did not. I think you guys said it all. It's good. Oh, there's one interesting thing that I think, well, we could talk for a long time about some of these ones at the bottom. There's, there are some interesting contrasts when it's talking about God and his relationship to, to the humans. So we already talked about this. He scatters and he gathers. Okay, so this was, part of, um, this was part of the commandments. This was part of the covenant. We should put commands here. So part of the covenant in Deuteronomy was 
the Lord God said to his people, if you obey me and keep my commandments and you don't turn and worship other gods, then I am going to uh, bring you into this promised land. You're going to live in this land where you live with me. You experience the fruitfulness of my blessing on you. If you do not keep my commandments, if you turn from me to other gods, then what comes upon you is not the abundance and the blessing of, of my kingdom, but it's actually curses. And that's just part of this covenant relationship he had with his people. And part of that said that he was going to scatter them far and wide outside of this good, abundant land that he um, had, had sort of destined them for. Um, but still, in his mercy, that then if they returned to him, he would gather them back. So it's not just this scattering to nothing, but there's this mercy of God that, that gathers his people back when they return to him. And one more thing is, uh, when it talks about the people of Israel, when Nehemiah is praying at the end, he talks about, you know, the people as God's servants who delight to fear in the name of God. And I think, I can't fit it in there, but this idea of delight and fear is a beautiful contrast that sort of um, sums up the whole, the people of Israel and this relationship they have with God. This great and awesome, that word is actually terrible, fearsome, right? He is very high, very powerful. He has a strong arm. He has given these commands, and they must obey these commands. If they do not, they are sinning against him. Um, it is, he, he is sort of a terrifying God, and yet, what? He has steadfast love and mercy toward them, so it is a delight to fear his name. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's the whole story of scripture we'll see it a lot okay um we're going to move on here and here's what we're going to do um we're going to do some work in our groups and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about why does this matter why do we care that god wants to have relationship or partner with humanity Looking at the character of God is one of the most valuable, important observations we can make when we are reading and studying the narrative books of the Bible. Seeing how God is described, what is said about him, what he himself says and what he does is uh, a really important thing to to pay attention to and, and once we begin to see these observations it can build for us a more robust understanding of of who God is and and starting there with this understanding of the character of God then we can begin to look at the human characters in light of the character of God and we can see more clearly human identity human belonging and human purpose in light of the divine so who are we as people in light of who God is? And, and where do we belong? Where do we fit in in light of who God is and the truth of God's character? And then what is our purpose in light of God and God's own purposes and plans for his creation? Um, and one of the ways we go sort of off the rails in this is that we often start with the characters 
themselves and we look at the human characters and, and we get we begin to focus more on what they're doing what they're saying and doing that we we make the the obvious jump that well if we could just be more like them if we could just do what they do then we misunderstand that as the point of the story and and while there are some important things we can learn from from some of the biblical characters who are human definitely in the story what we do miss out on is what the story is actually about the the bigger picture of of the character of God and and this understanding of who God is in history and in relation to people. Uh, so we do that sometimes in the story of Nehemiah and we we pay more attention to him and his characteristics than God. When we start with Nehemiah, we come away from these first couple chapters saying, well, Nehemiah is really good at praying. I, I better be better at praying. And Nehemiah is a really good leader. So I'm going to do what Nehemiah does and I'm going to be a good leader too. But when you start instead with the character of God, you come away from these first two chapters and what you realize is that Nehemiah is not just good at praying, but Nehemiah knows the character and the person of God. He knows the purpose and the plan of God. And all he's doing really is he is praying the plans and promises of God back to God. And while he does have some good leadership characteristics, what is abundantly clear is that God's hand is sovereign over this entire project. God is the one leading. God is the one guiding. God is actually doing a work and he is partnering with the humans in this story. Well, when it comes to chapter three, it can be a bit daunting. It is a long list of unpronounceable names and foreign places we've never heard of. And when it comes to context, we're just so far removed in time and place that it can be tempting to just skip over this chapter quickly and believe it has nothing for us. However, when we apply our inductive model of study to this, um, we actually can get a lot of good meaning out of it. So in our groups this week, we paid attention to a couple things. First of all, we looked at the repetition of words and then we looked at these characters, these builders, uh, not in terms of their proper names, but in terms of who are they? What is said about them? What can we say about this list of people um, as a group? What do we know about them? So we opened up our study guides to pages 16, 17, and we discussed the homework questions that we did there, basically um, questions two to eight. And out of that, we got this bigger picture of the author's intended meaning for us. And then as we gathered back together for our final teaching time, we looked at how to interpret and apply this. So understanding um, these chapters one to three and, and seeing what the author meant for these people then, we can then make the next jump to application and say, what does this mean for us today? Let's wrap up tonight. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the work of the people of God. Okay, Nehemiah has this work that he has to do. And so we're going we're gonna to answer these three questions. What is the work? And how is the work accomplished? And what fuels the work? 
What's the reason for it? Just those three questions. And in doing that, we're going to do the second half of inductive, or maybe it's the, the last two-thirds to be really mathematical, because we did a lot of observation together. We're just looking and seeing what it says, right? And we're saying what we saw and, you know, um, seeing the relationships and the connections and the parallels between words. It's a lot of observation. So when we get to this next step of Bible study where we interpret, we want to say, what did this mean to these people? What were they understanding by it? Or the people that read um, the, the first recordings of it when it's written down, what did it mean to them? And then we can move on to applying, saying, what does it mean to us? So we're going to do those two things. What is this for them? And then what is it for us? And we're going to look at those three questions. What is the work? How is it accomplished? And what fuels this work? Okay, so what is the work mission and the mission here in the book of Nehemiah? Well, God's people are in trouble and shame. That's what, that's what Hanani, or what, how did you say it? Hanani? Yeah, I like that, too. Um, that's what he said, the people, God's people, the people of Israel, the people who survived the exile, you know, they are in great trouble and disgrace or trouble and shame. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. So that's the, that's the, the work that faces Nehemiah. He has to repair a wall. And in doing that, he will restore a city but he will also restore a people, we're going to see. He, he, it's not just about this, the city. There's more to restore than, than just the infrastructure. Okay, The people themselves need repairing and rebuilding too. Uh, we talked a bit about this last week, so I won't spend too much time here, but um, why, why this wall? Why is this so important? And we said um, last week that, or last time we were together, that walls do two things in the ancient Near East. First of all, they provide protection uh, from enemies, protection for lives and resources. Okay? Do you know who in the biblical story built the first wall? Genesis 4, it was Cain. Yeah. Cain, it says Cain built a city, and what that really means is that he built a wall about, uh, around a bunch of houses, because that is what makes a city. If you have a bunch of houses or a bunch of buildings, you have a bunch of houses or a bunch of buildings, but as soon as you put a wall around it, you are now a city. So because of that, the wall also creates identity, okay? Protection, but also I really want us to think about the way that it created identity. Um, they separate the people inside the walls from the people outside the walls. So there is distinction. These people are set apart. They are now a people. They are a city. Um, and these walls in particular made the people of Israel, Jerusalem. Um, this was a very special city, and we'll talk more about this next time too. I, we... We could go for a long time and say, like, why is this city so, so special? This is just a part of the entire land, but why is it so special? Um, and why is it so important here? We will really talk about that next time because in the next um, three chapters, it's really salient, the observation of the where. It's going to talk a lot about the, the setting and the where. And that part of that is the city of Jerusalem. So we're going to talk about that next time. But for now, we already said, uh, we said that this city, Jerusalem, is was chosen by God, that 
God put his name on it. It is central not only to the story of God's people, it's central to their relationship. It's where the temple was. It's where God met with his people. His presence dwelt there. And at the height of of the kingdom of Israel, when David was, was sitting there on the throne, and there's a few chapters where it's just like, cue the everything is awesome song, because there we go, like they've done it. And then Bathsheba, right? And it all starts to fall apart, so... Um, But we'll talk more about Jerusalem next time. It's important for us to think about Jerusalem then is different than Jerusalem now, right? Um, So, but we can just keep, we can think about it. Here's how it's the same. Think about Jerusalem as representing this kingdom, right? The kingdom of God. That's where God's people lived in God's place that he had set aside for them with his presence and under his rule and reign of his king his chosen king, which was David, and then, you know, the line after that. So where, where God's people are living and dwelling with him in this place, and his king is there, ruling and reigning, it's like God's kingdom. Um, so now, just to do a big jump, there's a lot, we, you know, you need to cover a lot of ground to get there, but now because we studied Revelation 21, we see that um, we can still sort of think of Jerusalem in this spiritual way of like this kingdom of God, only it's not this place on a map that we can point to anymore, right? And, and we actually know that it's sort of special because we read Revelation 21 and we see that Jerusalem is a city that is going to come down, right? It comes down out of heaven and it's prepared like a bride. And remember when it talked about Jerusalem, we were saying, why does it sort of sound like Jerusalem's the city, but it's a bride, but it's also all the people together? Exactly. <laughs> because it's, um, it, it's the kingdom of God. It's a hard thing to put your finger on. It's a hard thing to talk about. But basically, when you think about it now, God's people in God's place where his presence are under his chosen king is his kingdom. That is spiritual Jerusalem. In, in a sense, we could say this is us, right? It is his church. The body of Christ has, has replaced that in a way now. Um, and in this bigger sense, Jerusalem has become this, this bigger thing that actually we are a part of that. Okay, so that is um, what was the work then? Well, for Nehemiah, it's, he's rebuilding a wall. He's rebuilding a city, which will rebuild a people. So how about for us? What is the work? Is there work for us today, can we apply this? Is there repair or rebuilding or renewal work to do in the kingdom of God? I think obviously we know the answer is, is yes, right? Um, I think there's always strengthening and, and growth that needs to happen um, in the kingdom amongst the people of God. This is maybe the idea of building up the body, strengthening the people of God. Um, where is there, looking around and saying, where is there brokenness? There's relationships that need the grace of God. There is um, faith that needs strengthening. There, there's health that needs the strong hand of God. Um, some, some of the ways we seek the welfare of the kingdom of God, I think, is, is as a church body, we commit ourselves to spiritual practices. 
we get together and we, we worship. We remind everybody who God is and, and why we belong together. We, we practice um, generosity with each other. We devote ourselves to um, the word of God as truth and we devote ourselves to prayer as a way to be dependent on God, these sorts of things. Um, and we just look around and see how can we have these flourishing values of the king, like his love and his peace and his joy and all these things that we know are true of Jesus. How can that like flourish in us? How can those things really grow in us so that as a people we, are, we just sort of stand out as being very peaceful, very loving, like, like knowing truth and full of grace? And then as we are sort of, you know, scattering into our neighborhoods, we always say here at Crossridge, that we're carrying those kingdom values to the people around us. That, that they could say, hmm, you're pretty peaceful in a really, you know, tumultuous time in history. Or our neighbors are people that really care for us. They seem to have a, a lot of love for us. And or these people just have a lot of joy. And, and why do they have joy? So we're carrying the kingdom then as we grow it and, and foster it amongst each other, then we're carrying it to the world around us. Okay, um, let's talk about then how this work, how this renewal, this rebuilding, this strengthening of, of the kingdom of God, how is it accomplished? Well, how was it accomplished in the book of Nehemiah? Did you, what did you guys say were the repeated words there in chapter 3? What repeated words did you see? Next to. Yeah, next to. Beside, next to, next to, beside. Anything else? Maybe, set doors. Yes, yeah. And actually, if, yeah, and a lot of the times, there's only one word that, um, in in the original Hebrew, it's only using one word, like repair, 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 repair. Next to, next to, beside. Uh, I think it's good to think about that word repair because that, that, the word that's actually used there is not a word that means like um, restore it back to how it, it was before. It's, it's a word that means to, to strengthen what is there. It's not, you're not always having to go back and, and like make things how they used to be. Sometimes there's sort of a forward progress where you're having to strengthen, you're having to use some burnt ruins, some boulders that have been burnt down and they're broken, but that's, what, that's some of the materials that, that Nehemiah was using to put this wall back together. But it's really important to say that, um, first of all, how the work of the people, how, how God's work was accomplished was in unity in this book of Nehemiah, right? They worked beside each other next to it was a complete circle all the way around the wall. They're working beside each other. Um, and not only in unity, but also in di- diversity, right? What do we notice about the people? So diverse, yes. All the people, right? Skilled and unskilled. Craftsmen, but, or else perfumers. And goldsmith, right? Uh, not just serving in their giftings, but outside of their gifting. Men, daughters, religious people, but also lay people who were not particularly religious. All the people. Some people were building near their homes, right? Across from where they lived. Some people came from another city. And so just all a, a wide variety of people um, were doing the work. All the people were doing the work. 
Um, I think it's important then to think about, okay, does this have application for us? Yes. Yes. The work of the kingdom, like building what we, we try to build even here at Women's Studies, takes all of us in our giftings and outside of our giftings, right? All of us. There's this, going back to what we said before, this communal nature um, in the body of Christ and of faith. And as we serve, um, we will be sometimes serving in areas like, yeah, that we're gifted at. And sometimes we're going to be serving in areas where we are not gifted. And still, that we, we're called to do that too. And it's easy for us to say, well, this is my, I'm really gifted here, so this is where I need to serve the body of Christ. That's actually not what happens here. Right? Perfumers are out there swinging a hammer and thinking, like, I'm not cut out for this. Probably. Um, what did you learn from the, from the Tekoites? The nobles of the Tekoites. Did you guys talk about that? The only group that did not help. Pride. Yeah. Pride, you say? Yeah. Um, go ahead. They kind of miss out. Sure they do. Yeah. Sure they do. Yeah. What did your Bible say was the re- what what? They didn't want to serve. Yeah. They didn't want to serve their Lord. Yeah. Um, some of the let's see. <clears throat> what does the ESV say about the Tokoites? They wouldn't stoop. Yeah. Any other versions? Do you have anything else? They didn't. And what does it say before that? Read the whole sentence, Deborah. Okay, so they wouldn't stoop. They wouldn't put their shoulders to the work. What else does it say in some of your other? Anybody else have a different version that says something different? Mine says, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. Yeah, put, they wouldn't put their neck to it. If you have the CSB, it says they wouldn't lift a finger. Um, <clears throat> actually, the word does mean bend their neck to it. What version is that? Yeah, that's probably the right there. It's, it's not always, but um, that's probably the closest translation to what the Hebrew says. It says they won't, they wouldn't bend their necks to it, which doesn't really make sense a lot, <coughs> except for if you think about the whole Old Testament story. Okay, so these Tekoites, they wouldn't bend their neck. You maybe would say they were stiff-necked. Have you ever heard of the people of God being called stiff-necked in the Old Testament story? Yeah. Think about Moses when he came down the mountain and, and the people had built a golden calf right after God had given them the Ten Commandments. Right? He's coming down the hill, and, and what does he see? They've, they've asked Aaron to build this golden calf, and they're already worshiping idols. And God says, nope, these are a stiff-necked people. I'm going to destroy them, right? And um, throughout the whole Old Testament, God often refers to Israel as a stiff-necked people. And I think it's interesting to look at this because quite a few of you said, you know, they didn't, they didn't want supervisors. They, didn't, they had pride. And really, that's it, right? They wouldn't humble themselves to the work. They didn't want to be supervised. They wanted to be the supervisors. I think it's interesting to think of being stiff-necked in that way, of not being willing to bend to the work, right? Wanting your own way, wanting to be in charge, and maybe then you don't have to lift a finger if you're the one in charge, right? As we said before. Yeah, work, 
um, the work of God actually, how is it accomplished in humility? I think we have to say that. Like you cannot, um, especially in the kingdom of God, to come in and say, okay, I'm going to serve the kingdom, but I can only be on this platform and do this, right? Uh, we kind of know how, how that goes. We, we need to serve in humility. And often it means you're a perfumer and you're going to be swinging a hammer. And usually it's like cleaning bathrooms, to be honest. But. Okay, finally, let's just do one more. What is the foundation of the work? Like, why does Nehemiah do this? So he, he actually has a really good job in the king's court. He's pr- probably really comfortable there, right? He's, he's, got, a good, he's got a good job. What, to leave this, to leave his job there to leave um, Susa, the capital, and to take this on is a big sacrifice. Actually, it's, it's dangerous. He has to act, ask for um, like an armed escort to take him there. He has no resources. He has to ask the king for wood and lumber to actually rebuild. Why would he do this? Anybody, anybody have any ideas? Why would he do it? Yeah, it's, it's all about the plan and purposes of God, isn't it? I think the answer is his prayer. The answer is found in his prayer. Yeah, he knows that's what's best. God's is God's plan to dwell with his people. And it's not going to happen as long as Jerusalem is burnt down and he's not dwelling like God. The Lord is not dwelling there with his people. Um, His mission is fueled by knowing the purposes and the plans and the character and the heart of God. Everything that he says to God, he prays all those words to God about who he is and what he said and remember what you said and remember what you told us. Nehemiah actually believes that's true. 100% he believes that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. And actually Nehemiah values God's plans and purposes above his own. And so that's why he does it. So sometimes when we think, I think when we think for us about like working this idea of mission, getting on mission, or, or like kingdom work, there, there's a misunderstanding. We think we work for God, like for him. We work for God. And what I mean by that is that it's sort of a, it's actually maybe like a box that we check specifically to gain his favor and acceptance and love. Um, That, you know what, if you're a good Christian, if you really love God, you're going to get out there and work for him. And I think once a year, we, we always have to get up in front of each other and we have to say there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more or make God love you less. Nothing. And that includes getting on mission for him. Okay? You cannot point to someone and say, oh, like God loves that person a lot better because they are way better. They're, they're, on, they're on mission. They are working for God. Our, our work is not for God. It's actually with God. It goes back to um, our whiteboard, which I lost, but that human divine partnership that God wants to be with people. Same thing. He wants to work with people he wants to partner with us to see human flourishing it was his design from the garden it's why we were made 
to be in relationship with God, to relate to him and to rule with him, to spread his kingdom to the rest of the world and to represent him to everyone because his kingdom values are what bring human flourishing, life that is truly life. Um, so our, you know, I think Nehemiah's did and our mission or work for the kingdom or anything of that always will flow from love and relationship. We will see God as compelling, and then we'll just like, hey, we want to be where he is. You know, if he's doing something over there. I want to be over there. Like, I want to come alongside him, and I want to experience that because it is abundance and it is life. Um, but finally, we should just say that before any of this mission or work or, or renewal, rebuilding, whatever we want to say can happen, there has to be this acknowledgement of, of ruin and brokenness and trouble. It's where we have to start. We have to, um, maybe, it means like take stock, sort of like Nehemiah did. He went back to Jerusalem, and in the night he got up and he went for the little walk or the ride, and he looked at the ruins. He said, he inspected it. What's broken? How bad is it? What needs fixing? What am, what am I going to need to do here? And I think we need to do that, um, and it's good, not, not to just to do that communally, but also personally or individually too. We, you know what, we can do that in our churches. We can do that in our community groups. We can take stock. What's broken? Where do we need renewal? Where, where can we maybe, the Lord want, where does the Lord want to do rep- repair in us? Maybe in the teams that we minister with, that we serve with, in our own families, for sure. Um, but also we need to do that in our personal lives, right? We can ask, where does God, where, where is he pointing me towards brokenness? Where are there ruins that he wants to um, rebuild and repair and strengthen? Um, maybe renewal for you. I just would like you to think back maybe to the last time we were together. We talked about what does this specifically look like in our own life? You was one of the questions you did also uh, page 15, number six, what, what area of your life in your homework this week? Like, is there need for renewal or maybe repair? How is God prompting you towards this? It, it might be that you have to turn from some sin. Maybe that's what he put on your heart, that you're living in, in a way that is contrary to his kingdom values or contrary to his heart or character, and he wants you to turn from that. Maybe, maybe he's just saying, hey, can you get some fire back in your belly for me? Can you get excited about relationship with me? Can, can you just like remember what it feels like to just like live with full of the spirit and compelled by the love and the faithfulness and the character of God to get excited about it? Maybe, maybe that's what renewal is. But, but we do have to say that the kingdom work begins in ruins. That's where it starts. And specifically, we call it confession and repentance. That's where it starts. If you want any sort, personally, now I'm talking personally, not communally. If you want this sort of renewal or rebuilding, if you want God, if you're saying, okay, God, yes, I want you to do the repair, I think. <laughs> I, I, no, I, I want you to do the repair. I want you to do the renewal. Um, start, this is where we have to start. Confession and repentance, and then we actually have to turn away from the comfy job in the palace, and do the hard thing, which is work. And we're going to see that it is hard over the next um, few chapters. It's, it's not easy, 
but it is beautiful. You're going to see. It's worthwhile. Yeah, I would say let's not stay in the comfort of the Babylonian palace. We could take a risk. We can turn away um, from what's familiar. We can go back and press into surveying the ruins. Like listen to what the God, what God is prompting you even now and as you do this work. And then know with confidence that God will use broken and burnt stones to rebuild and to make something beautiful and better and stronger. And he will fill his, his work with his presence. And that is the, the most life-giving and the most beautiful thing. So I would just say, let us be women who pray for renewal and repair. Not just in our communities, in our churches, in our, in our families, that sort of thing. Um, but also personally and individually in our own lives, that we would be looking for that and, and wanting God to do something new and repair and rebuild and, and to live something stronger and more beautiful. Well, friends, thanks for studying along. And remember, for any of the resources you heard in the teaching podcast, check out crossridge.church forward slash study. We'll see you again soon.